pray together. Lord, you call yourself the Father of mercies. You tell us in your word that your mercies never cease. They're new every single morning, including this morning, Lord. You, it's by your mercy that we have breath and life and all things. It's not because we deserve it in our merit. It's your mercy. And beyond just those kind of gifts, Lord, the gift of a relationship with you is by your mercy. It's not something we could have achieved or um, paid for in any way. It is your mercy to us in Jesus. And you told us the reason that you sent Jesus is that all the ethnic groups that aren't Jewish, all the ethnic groups of the world would glorify you for your mercy. And so we want to do that this morning. We give you honor and praise for the mercy you've shown and continue to show to us. And we're dependent on your mercy even now as we open your word. It's not like we're smart enough to understand it in our own wisdom or have enough power over our hearts to have it have the right impact or right affections stirred. Lord, we acknowledge our complete dependence on your blessing on us this morning uh, for any spiritual benefit to happen, Um, any encouragement, any strengthening of faith, any hope stirred up. Lord, it's going to need to be a gift from you. And so we ask for that. And as Brett prayed earlier, there's probably someone listening that doesn't even know you yet, who has never experienced your saving mercy in Christ. We pray that even today they might know their need of mercy and need of a Savior and go to Jesus, the only hope. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Last Sunday we saw Peter blessing God for the miracle of regeneration. He is thanking God for causing us to be born again. He's praising God for his mercy that has made us alive even though we were spiritually dead and has brought us into his family even though we were by nature children of wrath. One of the privileges of being in a family is being made an heir. And so we read in Romans 8, 16, and 17, the Spirit himself testifies or bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So if you're a child of God this morning, remember as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe on his name. So if you're a child of God, you've been born again into his family, 
you're also an heir. It says that in Galatians chapter 4 as well. If you want to turn over to Galatians 4. Galatians 4 verse 6 and verse 7. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So Peter writes about our future inheritance in our text for this morning. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1 as we continue our study in this New Testament letter together. 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, and undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So an inheritance, if you look it up in the dictionary, is property or possessions or money that an heir receives when someone dies. It's something received as a gift, usually because you are part of a family. Well, Sometimes we are told ahead of time what we will be getting in the future, maybe a grandparent might say to you, well, I want you to have this piece of jewelry when I'm gone. And other times we don't find out until the will is read that something valuable has been passed on to us. But the basic idea of an inheritance is something good, something valuable that is ours in the future because someone has decided to give it to us as a gift. The New Testament mentions our inheritance a a number of times. Let me just give you a sampling Acts 26, 18. Acts 26, verse 18. This is Jesus speaking to Paul. The last part of verse 17 says, I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins, and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So there it is. Not just forgiveness of sins, but there's an inheritance in the future waiting. Or Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. A couple more. Colossians 1, 11 and 12. 
Colossians 1, 11 and 12. <coughs> Joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And then Hebrews 9, 15. Hebrews 9, 15. For this reason, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So let's look at how Peter describes our inheritance in verse 4. He uses four different descriptions. First, our inheritance is imperishable. It is not subject to change or decay or destruction. When we get to verse 18, he'll tell us, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things, like silver or gold. So silver and gold are often part of an inheritance on earth. And Peter says, those don't last, ultimately. But our inheritance lasts forever. Our inheritance is undefiled. It's not corrupted by sin. It's not tarnished by anything impure. It stays perfect forever. Our inheritance is unfading It will not fade away like the flowers from Valentine's Day. It remains fresh forever and never loses any of its beauty. And last, our inheritance is reserved or kept in heaven for us. So maybe you've gone to a restaurant. um, Maybe you tried this Monday night. And they ask, well, do you have a reservation? And you say, no. And they say, well, I'm sorry, Uh, We don't have any tables for the rest of the evening. That would have happened on Monday if you went. Or on another night, they might just say, uh, it'll be at least an hour or more wait. And then while you're standing there trying to decide what to do, someone else comes up and says, reservation for so-and-so? And they say, right this way, and take them to a seat. And so they go in because they had a table reserved For them, it was there waiting for them. You could say that table had their name on it, and it wasn't going to be given away to anybody else. It belonged to them for the evening. And so Peter is telling us, our inheritance is all set. We have a reservation in heaven with our name on it, so to speak, and it's being kept for us until we get there. So Peter's already mentioned heaven now, and it'd be worth asking What comes to your mind when you think of heaven? Some think of mansions or streets of gold or pearly gates or a reunion with loved ones who have gone before. Others think of a verse like Revelation 21.4 that says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no longer any death nor will there be any mourning or crying or pain, the first things have passed away. So that'll be a wonderful thing. Or maybe you look forward to the day when there's no more sin, no more conflict with the devil, no more dangers, toils, and snares of this world. 
where no more doubts, no more fears, no more worries, no more despair. Maybe glorified bodies that are incorruptible and not subject to weakness and weariness and just feeling rotten. That'll be nice. 1 Corinthians 2.9, which we quoted last week, is eye has not seen or ear heard or entered into the thoughts of man, but God has prepared for those who love him. So that your best thought about heaven is still far short of how wonderful it's going to be. Those are all wonderful blessings, but they are not the ultimate blessing of heaven. We haven't hit the main joy of heaven. Do you remember what we sang a few minutes ago? I don't want riches or man's empty praise. Remember what comes next? You're my inheritance. Now and always. God's my inheritance forever. You and you only first in my heart. Highest priority, highest affection in my heart. You're first in my heart, high king of heaven. My treasure you are. And I think I stole this from John Piper. Um, We will not be idolaters in heaven. We will not value or enjoy anything else, including all the blessings of heaven we've already mentioned, more than we value and enjoy God himself. So here's a couple quotes from some guys in the 1600s and then some texts. So first, a guy named Alexander Nisbet. This inheritance which the regenerate are born unto and have good ground to hope for is nothing else but the Lord himself to be enjoyed by them for all eternity. And then Robert Bolton said, We shall enjoy the face and the presence of the most glorious and all-sufficient God, and all the powers of our souls will be satisfied with everlasting delight. So let's look at some verses. Um, Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the tent, dwelling place of God is among men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. So we'll be in the presence of God himself. And then in chapter 22, verse 3 and 4, there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face. Remember, it talks about in 1 Corinthians 13. Now we see through a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Go to Psalm 16. Psalm 16, verse 5. The Lord is the portion 
of my inheritance. And then verse 11, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. So being in the presence of God is where the fullness of joy is. Those other things are joyful, but the fullness of joy is to be in God's presence. Go to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. It says, Asaph. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. One last one is 1 Corinthians 15, 28. 1 Corinthians 15, 28. Paul is describing the resurrection of Christ and then the end of the world and how Jesus is going to put all his enemies under his feet, including death. And then when he gets to 20, he says, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. Why? So that God may be all in all. That's where everything is going. Jesus is reigning right now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. All things are being brought under his feet, under subjection to him. The last enemy will be death. And when that's defeated at his return, Jesus hands over everything to the Father. And God is all in all forever. The end. That's where it's going. God will not be less than all in all. Everything to everybody. Jonathan Edwards said it this way. The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. So if you're into tweeting, send that out. The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven, fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant things here. Fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, or children, or the company of friends are but shadows, but God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. So being in God's presence and enjoying him forever is our glorious inheritance. And yes, there's a lot of other things that go with that, but that's the main thing, is enjoying God. But, could something still go wrong so that we don't end up receiving it? For example, I could have a reservation at a restaurant with my name on it, 6 o'clock, Monday night, But what if I get the flu and I'm too sick to go? Or what if there's a big blizzard and I can't get there? Or what if there's some kind of family emergency comes up and that just wouldn't be right to to go out to dinner? There's, There's no guarantee that I will get to enjoy dinner at that restaurant even though I have a reservation. 
So could something like that happen to our inheritance? Peter says it's reserved in heaven for us. That's half of it. (laughs) But what about our end? Could we still miss out? We sang, yes, I to the end shall endure. How do I know I'll endure to the end and not make shipwreck of faith? Just this week I read a couple articles and had a conversation about people deconstructing their faith and deconverting. So how can I know I won't end up like that? I'm, I'm fine today, but how do I know I'll wake up next year a believer? Is it because my faith is so strong? We are all in big trouble if it's up to us to keep ourselves in the faith. And Peter tells us in the next verse, it's not up to us, ultimately, up to our strength. Our inheritance is kept in heaven for us, and we are being kept for heaven. So look at verse 5 now in 1 Peter 1. It's reserved in heaven for you who are protected or kept or guarded by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So that word is used in 2 Corinthians 11, 32. You don't have to turn to it. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas the king was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. So this idea of there's a military uh, guard protecting a city. And Peter uses that idea to say, our souls are being kept by the power of God. A couple other verses that say that. Um, so we've, we've been born again by the mercy of God. We're being kept by the power of God. 2 Timothy 1.12, some of you will remember the old song that goes with it. I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. He's keeping it. I entrusted it to him. He's keeping it until the final day. Or Jude 1 says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. We're being kept for Jesus by God. 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. So God has this keeping ministry for his children. And it says God keeps us through faith, not apart from faith. Faith is not somehow now optional. God's power keeps us through faith. And that's sometimes called the perseverance of the saints, that those who are truly born again and belong to God do persevere in faith. So you have a verse like Hebrews 3.14. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. We demonstrate the reality of our partaker, partaking of Christ by holding fast till the end. We don't hold fast 
to the end, and that qualifies us to be a partaker of Christ. It's where grammar matters. We have become a partaker, and the evidence of that is we endure. If it's real, it lasts. So God's power sustains and preserves our faith to the end when our salvation will be revealed in the last time. And a couple of verses along with that would be Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it or perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God started the work of grace in us, and it's he's committed to perfecting it and seeing it through all the way to the end till Jesus comes. Or Jeremiah 32, 40. Jeremiah 32, 40. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good and... I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. So God is keeping us. He works in us in such a way that we will not finally, ultimately turn away from him. Another text that reassures us that we are being kept for salvation is John 10. John chapter 10, and we'll begin at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. So, Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and earth, promises no one will snatch my sheep out of my hand. The word snatch means take away or seize by force. It's used in verse 12 of the same chapter. John 10, 12. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. So there it is. If you're not a shepherd, the sheep get snatched. They get seized by a wolf. I'm a shepherd. That's not going to happen to my sheep. We sing the song, No power of hell, no scheme of man shall ever pluck me from his hand. So I stole this from Awana. I promised to put it back. It's a little blue stone. And let's say this represents my eternal soul. My eternal soul. I've entrusted this eternal soul to Jesus. And Jesus says, this is in my hand. And he says, I'll never allow my soul, this soul to be taken out of my hand. It's, it's being kept safe by him John 6, 39 says, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose none. So Christ cannot and will not lose one of his sheep. 
The question is not, can a Christian lose his salvation? The question is, can Christ lose one of his sheep? So this is from Robert Mounts. The preservation of the sheep is the task of the shepherd. It is up to him to keep them safe. And no one can be absolute, and one can be absolutely positive that the good shepherd will never let any of his sheep wander beyond his care. The salvation that we received is a salvation that cannot be lost because it is safeguarded and guaranteed by none other than Jesus Christ himself. Our continuance in eternal life depends not on our feeble hold on Christ, but on his firm grip on us. Which is why we're going to sing, he will hold me fast at the end. If it was up to us hanging on to Jesus, we'd all be goners. Our faith is weak. But thankfully, his strength is all-powerful. And then if, 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 as if that wasn't enough to tell us our salvation is safe and secure forever, he adds, verse 29, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So if I was the strongest man in the world, no one would be able to pry this out of my hand, right? Because I'm stronger than anybody else, so nobody's getting that out. Well, we are being kept by the almighty power of God. Jesus says he's greater than all, which means no one is able to snatch us out of his hand. This is how God says it in Isaiah 43. I am God Even from eternity I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? So if I'm in his hand, and Jesus said I am, then no one's going to deliver me out of that hand. I'm safe forever. Well, as we close, what are you expecting to happen after this life is over? Nothing? Just cease existing? And if you're a consistent believer in random evolution, that's all there is. (laughs) It's just done. A lot of people think in terms of, I'll go to a better place. That seems to be the default destination of everybody now. A better place. However that's defined. A lot of people, especially If you're in a church this morning, you might be thinking, well, I hope I go to heaven. So if God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And common answers would be things like, I've been a pretty good person, or I did volunteer work to help others. I went to church. And none of those things, or even all of them, combined, will gain us entrance into heaven. Jesus is the only way. He said himself, I am the way and the truth and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So those other ways don't even mention Jesus. It mentions what I do. I do this, I do that, I don't do this. I'm going to get to God and heaven and through me. And Jesus says, no, nobody gets there that way. The only way to heaven is through me, as in Jesus. He's the only one who can remove the barrier between God and us, the barrier of our sin. 
which is a lack of conformity to his will. Doing what he says is wrong, like having other gods before him. Failing to do what he says we are to do, like love him with all our being. We've all fallen short. And Isaiah 59, 2 says, your sins have made a separation between you and your God. There's this gap, this grand canyon between us and God because of our sin. And we can't remove the barrier by anything we do, including good things. Isaiah 64, 6 says, your righteousness, all your righteous deeds are as filthy rags. So the best that we try to offer to God, he says, that's as unacceptable as a bunch of filthy rags. So our only hope is Jesus. He died on the cross as a substitute for sinners. He paid the penalty we deserve to pay for our sins. He experienced God's judgment and condemnation instead of us. He died in our place so that all who believe in him would be forgiven by God and restored to him. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ died for all once, Christ died once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again on the third day to show that he had won the victory over sin and death and the powers of hell. And because he's alive, Hebrews 7.25 says, therefore he is able to save to the uttermost, which means completely and forever, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In John 6, 37, Jesus says, the one who comes to me, Jesus says, I'll certainly not cast out. You come to Jesus, he won't turn you away. So come to him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you that you're the one who started the work of grace and salvation in our hearts. You started it from eternity past. You purchased it on the cross. You brought it about in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, causing us to be born again. And now we have this glorious future waiting for us of enjoying you forever. When we had turned away from you, when we had no time for you, that would be something we wouldn't even thought would be that appealing. But you've changed our hearts, and now we know deep inside that there's nothing that will satisfy our souls more than being with you and experiencing the fullness of joy in your presence. So, Lord, thank you that you've done that miracle in many of us this morning. I pray for anyone who hasn't experienced your saving grace, Lord, that even today they would take to heart the things that they've heard, that they would be convicted by the Spirit. They need a rescue from their sin and from themselves and from the powers of darkness and that the only one who can rescue them is Jesus. I pray that you would do that for the glory of his name. Amen. Well, we're going to stand and sing, He Will Hold Me Fast.